0: Welcome to Let's Cope, KLBP's quarantine response show where we tackle how our community is holding up during quarantine. Things are a little bit different right now and so we have a whole lot of other things to cope with and so we will be having a conversation around that but before we do I want to introduce my co-host which is...
1: Hi I'm Rose Lozon
0: and you may be used to hearing our voices typically on the show, but today we wanted to bring on a special guest host. We are having Sonny Bauman, who is the creator of The Daily Diddy, a podcast focused on Long Beach music, politics, art, and everything in between. He has been very active in covering the protest and keeping the community informed on a grassroots level with everything that is going on. Please welcome Sonny.
2: Hey, how's it going guys? Um, Good. Yeah, Just been in that community, trying to you know help out the people as a localist. So there you go.
0: Yeah, you, you've really been keeping it local and focused on what's happening here in the community. So we're excited to have you and, you know, have you lead some conversations that we're doing.
3: Swell, swell.
0: So today on the show, we will have Dr. Alex Norman, who is the president of the May Center, as well as Councilman Rex Richardson. But before we bring them in... I'm going to turn it over to Rose to talk a little bit about some of our COVID-19 updates.
1: Oh, yes. So the COVID-19 updates today, we have a total of 2,227 cases of COVID-19 in Long Beach, 126,016 cases in California, and 1,891,690 cases in the U.S. These numbers are not reflective of the protests. Some estimate these numbers are due to those who broke quarantine during Memorial weekend. The protest numbers will be reflective in the upcoming weeks. So uh, a report on the police brutality with Long Beach and the protests. Uh, The Long Beach Police Department has fired a police officer after learning he posted a picture of himself holding his baton over a blood splattered sidewalk during Sunday's protest against police brutality. The officer, Jacob Delgado, posted the image on his Instagram account around 9 p.m. on May 31st. This is the same time officers were clashing with protesters in downtown as looting began to spread across the city after the 3,000-person march. The baton in the photo had Delgado's name on it. Another Instagram account also shared the photo, adding the words, bro getting his, on top of the baton. In Long Beach, after closing COVID-19 testing sites last week to ensure the safety of the public and medical professionals, most city-run sites have been reopened since Monday. The city of Long Beach is also expanding the accessibility of COVID-19 testing with a new mobile service for residents who are not able to travel, including individuals at personal residences and those at skilled nursing facilities, long-term care facilities, and sober sober living homes. We still have a health crisis in Long Beach and it's critical that we get back to testing residents said Mayor Robert Garcia.
0: Thank you for those updates, Rose. We are going to lead into our first quarantine, which is Marvin Gaye's classic, What's Going On? And we'll have a little discussion about what is going on. Welcome back to Let's Go. That was Marvin Gaye's What's Going On? I am going to toss it over to Sunny to introduce our first guest of the day.
2: Hey, what's going on, guys? So uh, first we have Dr. Alex Norman, who currently serves as the president of the May Center, where he works to bridge the healing among the African-American and Cambodian communities by developing awareness of shared experiences, working through ancestral trauma and moving past European-centric doctrines that weaved white supremacy into our nation's framework for many generations He also is the professor of social welfare at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs and the co-founder of the Rethink Greater Long Beach, a community think tank which brings together diverse individuals who volunteer their varied experiences, knowledge, skills, ideas, and expertise to build a movement for social justice that will improve the lives of all residents of Greater Long Beach. Welcome to the show, Dr. Norman. How are you doing today, sir?
4: I'm doing fine, thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, so first, um, tell us a little bit about what you do.
4: That's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I do is consistently try to flunk uh, whatever Um, it is I'm doing. mm -hmm. Uh, I retired early from a professorship in order to develop a consulting practice, and write my memoirs. I, had, okay. I felt that I had had a professional career, was very successful uh, from civil rights to union organizing all the way to being a professor at one of the major, major universities during critical times. And I wanted to write about it.
2: Yeah, so that's important, man.
4: I flunked not- that and then I <laughs> moved to Long Beach where I thought I would really be able to write because I didn't know anybody only to find out that I knew everybody in Long Beach. because (laughs) I had been active and earlier in setting up the anti-poverty organization here in Long Beach. So I have become very active. uh, And during that um, active period, co-founded Advanced Organizing Institute and was introduced to Laura Som, who is um, an immigrant and refugee from Cambodia. And she introduced us to the concept of meditation, agriculture, yoga, and education as a way of dealing with trauma. Now, I had never even considered that I might have any kind of traumatic experiences until I engaged with uh, this this center. And during the practices, I noticed... uh, a difference in the level of anger uh, because when James Baldwin said to be black and aware in America is to be in a constant state of rage uh, because things happen and you never really settle down before something else happens. Mm-hmm. and uh, and I had that and one of the things that I have learned in working with the Cambodian community is about the intergenerational nature Of trauma. My grandparents were the first generation of freed uh, slaves. They were enslaved uh, from birth. So I got many of the stories of what happened during that period from my mother and from my uncles who were handed down the stories from their uh, relatives. And one of the things that I noticed was that there were no mental health centers, no counselors when the enslaved Africans were free. And so much of the trauma they carried over into their families and passed it on down to the succeeding generations. I never thought about that. So when you look at the whole idea of of physical punishment, um, that's one of the things that Black people do uh, that was really handed down from the generations. I mean, you take on the 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 demeanor of the oppressor. And uh, when you're at a party and somebody looks at you differently or in a certain way, it's no different than when in the South, when you look at some of the white people and they say, don't look at me that way. Well, how are you looking at me? The point is that It's not you're looking at them at the point that you're black. That's what. Yes. Uh Uh-oh. You have a question?
1: Laura Somme actually mentioned when we last had her on that uh, generational trauma gets passed down through seven generations. Do you think that considering you are only one generation away from slavery and we're in a current, our government still perpetuating traumatic experiences, Do you think that's gonna be expedited even further, or?
4: What I'm hoping is that um, in writing my memoirs, I'll be able to write about that. Uh, um, As a matter of fact, I've postponed writing my memoirs in order to do exactly what I'm doing now, go live, uh, and explain at the same time that I'm writing those memoirs, because we need to get into the thinking of people right now, what's happening. And uh, uh, we don't really understand the, the the trauma, the intergenerational aspect of trauma that African Americans are experiencing because our resilience has always pulled us through, and so, and our culture reflects it. So the the in the popular culture, only the strong survive. You know, so we get these messages that you've got to be strong. You know, you. You gotta survive, you gotta get through it. So we never really had time to grieve, or never had a time to reflect and think about it. But in the interaction with the Cambodian people, I've begun to think very much about it. And so I've tried to incorporate it in my writing to yeah. find out that the similarity between enslaved people is one of providing them with a demeaning self-esteem. So the Pol Pot and the Cambodian oppressors uh, demeaned the Cambodians in the same way that the slave masters demeaned uh, the uh, the African free people.
5: So
4: we began to take on the meaning because through propaganda, you repeat, you repeat, you repeat. And pretty soon, the other people believe. And so many of us believe And we inculcated that into our being. So we wanted to have straight hair. We wanted to have bleak skin. You know, we wanted to have uh, thin lips. uh, We wanted to have thin noses. We wanted to look more white than we are black. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of of acceptance of oppressive uh, traits to inculcate in our own being is a part of the intergenerational trauma. And so I want to write about the need for us to have a conversation about that so that we can acknowledge it, but we can do something about it. In other words, it's it's not enough to just understand it. We have to then do something about it. And what I've been attempting to do is kind of heal myself, you know, my anger. You know, because uh, I've lived too long to have these things happening over and over and over and over again, not to be angry yeah really channel so that anger into some kind of a positive um, energy
2: i wanted to say I'm something to about the
4: uh, right to do that mm-hmm. i wanted so that's to say something now. Mm-hmm.
2: i wanted to say something about what you said earlier about you know the generational trauma um, in psychology they say that the child that you that you were makes you into the adult that you are today you know and you can take that and put it into sociology, which is the study of people in groups. You know, if you want to go by race, we, you know, the descendants are the adults in this in this uh, in this example, and our ancestors are the children. So whatever happened to the children, you know, it affects the adults. And uh, just what you're saying about education as well. I always tell my friends this: I says, uh, you know, history means history uh his story and mystery is my story it's funny mysteries are things we don't know so you know uh blend words particle you know particle words and stuff so it's important that we know these things so we can move forward because if you don't know your mystery you know that was the most important thing back in the day for us is you know knowing thyself you know when you see the sun with the with the two wings on it uh in ancient Kimmy or Egypt or whatever you, you want to call it. That's what that meant. So it's important that we know the trauma and how to fix it. So things don't keep happening, you know, cause just like you were saying, even, even soul food, you know, I have to constantly remind my family that, you know, those are the, you know, gumbo is like the, the scraps that they're giving us. You know what I'm saying? Chitlins, you know, we have to make a delicacy out of that. So I'm trying to break that and say, Hey, this isn't soul food. You know, like we have to, move on and, you know, have better systems because that's why we have, uh, blood blood pressure, diabetes and things like that, man. So, um, uh, as people of color, how do we emotionally and spiritually heal, uh, our individual selves and our families from, you know, the violence of, uh, the systematic racism and, you know, how do we address the healing gaps, um, That comes from you know different groups of people in color and just in our own groups you know because I have family that are you know uh, my mom's side they're all Crips and stuff and then my dad's side you know they help build like the daycare CIL on Twentieth and Olive and stuff so you have two sides that are like working in the streets and then you know working in politics and things like that and then they don't want to really talk to each other you know I'm saying how do we get these people together or like you know when people come to my page and say, you know, nobody's fighting for the ICE kids, you know, so why would I support Black Lives Matter? You know, how do we, you know, bridge these, bridge these gaps?
4: Well, one, you mentioned education. Yeah. and uh, The point is that we've been miseducated. See, pan-Europeanism uh, uh, made the statement that only the European nations were worthy. Everything, everybody else was unworthy. So wherever Europeans went, whether there was imperialism or colonialism, they carried white supremacy with them. And that what we have to understand, whether you're Latino or Asian, or African-American, or Native American, you have to understand that white supremacy is the thing that oppresses you, not the fact that some other ethnic group gets the rewards or the scraps that the oppressors throw their way in order to keep us divided. Exactly. Because the... The, the strategy of the imperialists and the colonialists and the white supremacists is to divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. But the first thing is violence. They start with the violence. So that's why you see so much violence going on now in the police, because white supremacists have infiltrated the police department. And so they're there in large numbers. They're there in the military. And the systems have to deal with it. The difficulty we have in doing what you just suggested, you know, how do we heal ourselves? Is to recognize that we need to heal ourselves. Uh, well, we don't understand yet the kind of trauma that that we're experiencing because the institutions re-traumatize us. Mm-hmm. And so we we barely have a chance to deal with the trauma that we recognize before we're given another traumatic experience. So we have to have some ways of dealing with the immediate uh, situation. Yeah. You know, for me, it has been yoga and meditation. Wow. So I practice yoga, I practice meditation. I've been a long time practicer of Tai Chi for the last 40 years, mm-hmm. which is meditation and movement. And it's a way of centering and keeping you clear about what's happening around you. Exactly. So I think How do we, we do that because the other part of our lives is fending off the assaults. I mean, there has been a constant assault on black people ever since we first set foot on this uh, territory.
2: Yeah. That's, that's, Rose, uh, that's a question. yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, there's this quote from Angela Davis. You have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time. Like how much does your mental health like go into what you're saying, perpetuating the revolution and continuing the practice?
4: Well, Jackie Robinson said, a black man never has a day off. (laughs) So you have to just realize that you don't have any days off you know cuz you're going to be black every day and every day brings something that you have to deal with yes and
2: how do we um
4: it's the I, resilience you know you 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 use your resilience look the the people before me had it much tougher than I did and they made it so that's we right. have to we have to stand on that platform that they made it you know and read the 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 narratives, the, the slave narratives, and you, you read the life of Frederick Douglass and you think, God, you know, he yeah. was a strong man. Well, that same strength exists in us. That was passed down to us. And so that's what we need to use in order to sustain ourselves in a constantly oppressive white supremacist society.
2: Yeah. Um, tell us about, you know, is it pre-segregation or like, you know, before the, you know, the booming of the civil rights, tell us about that because, you know, a lot of us like me, you know, and you know, my mom was born in 68 and stuff like that. She, you know, a lot of us don't really know what, what, what that was like. And I've, I've never really thought about that, you know,
4: I'm glad that you don't know what it was like Mm. because, you know, because it's like hardware, it's like software, you know, on your computer. It's there and it just works. And uh, what happened was segregation was like software; it was just there. Mm. So um, I was born 1931. So as a teenager in during uh, uh, World War II, I saw lynchings. I mean, every day there was a lynching. Soldiers were getting lynched. Whole families were getting lynched.
2: My God.
4: So. So they would come to lynch the, the 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 man, and the man had escaped and gone north, so they lynched the whole family, hanging them up. And uh, that was a time when people were having lynching parties on Sunday after church. So after the church, Picknicks. they would take their families, and they would go to a lynching. And that's where, when you hear the hate, hate crime, where people use the N-word as they kill somebody or beat them, was happening, that was a characteristic of lynching. As the person was being burned or hanged, they would then um, hurl the, uh, the charges of nigger at them. So the, the segregated part was good in one sense that uh. we, because our educated people couldn't get jobs in the white institutions. We had some of the best educated teachers in our black colleges. Yeah. And they were well traveled. And in said grade of society, the white man didn't care what you learned as long as you didn't learn it with him. And our teachers took the advantage and the opportunity to to tell us about what was really happening. So I learned about the Japanese internment yeah. uh, in 1945. And yeah, totally. when I was in junior yeah. high school because one of my um, teachers had just been discharged from the army. And he told us about these. I knew nothing about I was in Atlanta, Georgia. In Those days, you know, you relied on newspapers. So the, the segregation was good in one sense because it made us build our own institutions, our historically-backed colleges, our insurance companies, our banks. Um, we had Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, was Black Wall Street. It was the most successful uh, community in in the country. And white people took it. They burned them out. They bombed the city and the the property. So it was good in one sense, it was bad in another sense. It was good in the sense that it allowed us to build our own institutions, that we were able to interact with people who were successful role models because we were all segregated in a, same community so the doctors the teachers the the workers all went once long so that was good the other is it was bad because it reminded you segregation reminded you constantly that you were inferior to white people
2: because um you know there's you know there's like Tulsa Oklahoma I know um you know, even even during the during the boycotts of the of the boys boycotts in um you know, Alabama, where my family's from, you know, we were boycotting those buses so hard that we even lost a a, a black owned um, bus company that nobody even really knew it was black owned because everybody was using the service and they didn't want to you know put it out there like that. So you know, um, it's a very it's it's very touchy because you have people of, the, of, you know, the black community, like, you know, the both sides. We're talking about this as, you know, we need to be segregated. So because we need to start our own system and not depend on this broken system. And, you know, other people are saying, well, you know, we just need to all come together and, you know, do the same thing, but with everybody. So, uh, yeah, it's just we just need to get everybody, you know, on uh, on just one plan, man and it's hard too, just going back in the, in the community. Cause I've been meditating for a long time since I was like 15 and uh, you know, eating healthy and I'm from the hood. So a lot of my friends, you know, they call me white, you know, <laughs> like all, all types of stuff. So, it's just about breaking that and just being like, yo dude, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is it. And here's the history of, of your people doing it since the beginning of time. So, you know, it's not a white thing or a black thing. Like I always like to tell people um, you have people that from different races that, you know, say, well, we started something first. We started something first, you know? And I always just go back to this example saying, you know, the stars are already in the sky. Everybody looked up and, you know, used those calculations for their culture. Nobody started anything. They just discovered it, you know what I'm saying? So, and you could track, you know, even in Europe, you know, people, you know, doing stuff with everything since the beginning of time. So, yeah, um, let me see. In organizing for social justice, such as what are we doing, what we're doing at this time, what are the biggest keys of success, you know, moving forward, you know, organized?
4: To me, it's thinking strategically. Mm -hmm. See, we can't continually react. And respond, because there is so, reacting and responding means we're being controlled. So I think we have to look long range. For example, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, building our own. I think we can build our own institutions without being segregated, mm-hmm. uh, because it's the idea of building the institution that's important. I like uh, that. We were educated. I was educated in the historically black colleges in the South. Both mine, uh, undergraduate and my graduate um, degree. My first graduate degree was from uh, Atlanta University and Morehouse and Morris Brown College. Where? and so we were sent out. You know, to I mean, we were educated, but we were sent out. We knew we weren't going to stay in Georgia because we were we were educated to represent. Mm -hmm. So we had to go out and represent the race. And we had to do twice as well as the white guy because we were going to be paid half as much. Or we had to do um, uh, twice as much in order to get noticed. And so the the building of the institutions are really important. Mm -hmm. But the thinking strategically is the most important. And that means that we really have to think about the long run. Mm -hmm. It means we can't assume that our success is going to be based on what happens tomorrow. Our success might be best based on what happens in five years, but we have to think strategically and it's the organizing. That is the important thing. I'm an organizer. Mm -hmm. And my belief is that we got to where we are because of this, organized civil rights movement in 60s. Mm-hmm. And that was collaborating organizations that differed philosophically, as you saying in your family, people differed, but they agreed on the goal of civil rights. And I think that that's what we have to do. We have to find a shared vision and organize around that shared vision. Wow. And a number of people are trying now to do that. But at the same time, we got to react. So it's important for Black Lives Matter uh, to be active, as it is important for uh, Councilman uh, Rex Richardson to be thinking about economic equity. Long term for economic equity. Uh, so we have to, we have to, multi- we've always had to multitask. So we have to keep those things in our minds. We have to think long range, but we have to act short range.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, like you're saying, delegate the work because I'm trying to do so many different things. And, um, you know, somebody might say, hey, dude, take a chill pill today. I got you today. I got the page. I got the da -da da." And then, you know, I come back and nothing's done. And they're just like, honestly, I don't see how you how you do it. And then I had somebody today that said, well, you know, you have to take what you're doing and delegate it between people. You know, you can't just give it all to one person. You know, certain people are good at different things. And that goes back to what you're saying, too, about, you know, some people protest. Some people like me, you know, we're on the economic ditty. Some people, you know, they're uh, more, you know, political or, you know, they're just at home, you know, sharing from home. So everybody has a way of doing something. And you have to allow that because me typically, you know, a couple of years ago, I was very anti-protest. I was more just, you know, getting people together on you know, the economic basis. And, you know, some people, you know, people just had to let me know, like, dude, some people, this is, you know, this is what they do. So you just got to allow that. Um, So yeah. um, My last question before we move on to, you know, our council members, what advice do you have to young people who are entering the world of activism
4: Oh, God, you know, you know, I, that's what I'm doing now. I've shifted my position. Um, last year, in a moment of insanity, I accepted a, a consultancy to help the uh, city of Long Beach develop a strategic plan for the youth and young adults. And so I've been engaged with young people for the last year. And uh, prior to that, I was working with millennials uh, out at... Uh, Uh, Claremont with uh, Reverend Leon Wood, so I've been working with young people to try and indicate to the young people that they stand on the shoulders of generations going back seven years, and they need to understand what happened to get them here because their responsibility is to create a better place for the generations that follow them. In other words, we need to plant shade trees right now for people who will use those shade trees, generations to come in the same way that we're taking comfort in the shade on trees that were planted generations before us. So I tell people, young people too, that while they're organizing to take some time for themselves to make sure that they're in good health, that they're eating right, that they are sleeping well, that they are not doped up on drugs in order to do the organizing, that they use the energy of being mission-driven rather than substance-driven as a way of of maintaining their health, but more that they begin to think strategically and that they work across uh, ethnicities because what's happening is that uh, we can't if we if we allow the divide and conquer. to conne- That's what Trump is trying to do. Trump is trying to divide and conquer. Hmm. If we allow that to continue, then fifteen to twenty years from now, somebody else will be having the same conversation. Yeah. Well. So we well narrative.
2: Well, uh, thank you, Doctor Norman, for being on today's show. We're gonna come uh, back to you in a second. We have Council Member. Rex Richardson, who represents the 9th District in North Long Beach, and is chair of the Long Beach City Council Economic Development and Finance Committee. He also serves as chair of the Long Beach Housing Authority. Uh, His record of accomplishments include championing the Long Beach Economic Inclusion Implementation Plan, establishing the city's Office of Equity, expanding shelter capacity to address homelessness, creating the PATH Youth Adult Diversion Program, leading the Long Beach My Brother's Keeper Initiative and securing major investments in the revitalization of North Long Beach with the Michelle Obama Neighborhood Library, the Houghton Park Community Center, and hundreds of millions of dollars in private, commercial, and industrial development. Regionally, he is the president of South California's uh, Association of Governments, representing 191 cities in Southern California region. Uh, Council member Richardson has a history rooted in advocacy for, most, uh, for the most vulnerable communities and is recognized for taking initiative to address local government challenges. How are you doing today, man?
6: I'm a little tired, but you know, young people always get me excited to talk to. So I just wanna say to all of you, thank you for inviting me. I also gotta say, you know, Elder Norman, is, it's always a pleasure hearing from exactly. you. And, and I got to say, you know, I was, I was what, 26 when I started getting involved in the city and Dr. Norman, he doesn't take it easy on you, but you know, I, I always respect my elders and he knows that he, he wrote mm-hmm. something that was really critical once of me and the other black council members. And I always reference that he sat down with me face to face, talked to me about it. So I'm just honored to be with you. So despite yeah. all of our, you know, what we're dealing with, uh, we have to keep
2: talking. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you've you know had a busy week just like all of us here you know what i'm saying uh tell us about you know the community response that you've been you know getting recently
6: well uh, if i could take some privilege I, you know before i just jump into what the city's doing and put on that city hat mm-hmm. um i studied philosophy in school and one of my favorite philosophers was was du Bois, and and you know and and the, the souls of black folks the Uh, you know the uh, double consciousness of of black people Mm -hmm. this is one of those moments where you know you understand your black consciousness and your worldview as a black man and also your responsibility as an American and for me as a local elected official that's even further prescribed for the things and the commitments that I made publicly to the people and so I I, want to before I jump into my role as a council person I want to just share my I want to hope to kind of share my perspective as, you know, one of the youngest elected leaders in, in the city's history uh, with young people. Um, and, and what I'll start with is when I was, when I was you know, eight, I turned 18 in August of uh, 2001, three weeks later, 9-11 happened. And that, again, sh- that shaped worldview that followed by two endless wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, That shaped worldview and psyche, followed by a great recession uh, at that point, the worst than 100 years, Um, and that shaped our psyche. It it, it made schools more expensive, more student loan debt just to to make it through uh, higher standards just to get a job. You have to have more and more education and more and more standards. Uh, The housing bubble took place and then uh, rapidly raised prices on housing so an entire Mm -hmm. generation of people couldn't buy from there you had a few you know a few good years with barack obama followed up by donald trump uh from there now you have a another you have a worldwide pandemic that hasn't had happened in 100 years and now a great recession that hasn't happened and now we have uh a a movement a worldwide multicultural intersectional movement for black lives that's taking place all of that imagine the psyche imagine the psyche and i'm you told me that you you just said that you were you were uh, 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 born in what 87 88 something like that who me yeah your mom was born and you said your mom was born in 68 right yeah
2: 68
6: my mom was born in 62 we're not we're the same generation yeah so just imagine the leadership that's emerging and the worldview and the psyche Mm -hmm. you put that on top of just as a as a black man i'm not from california i think people know that i was born on an air force base in east st louis
5: okay i was was just gonna ask you that
6: yeah yeah, so so yeah, I'm not originally from here, but I moved around, I've lived in, I went to 14 different public schools across five states. Yeah. So I lived in St. Paul, right next to Minneapolis. I started kindergarten a mile away from Ferguson. Uh, I pay attention, I always compare my experiences as a young man to all the things I'm seeing happen around the world. Your family's from Alabama, I moved here directly from Alabama. My great grandfather's store, he built a store to compete with the one white store in a small town called Palmetto. It was burned down with a cross burnt in the front. Um, and my 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 mother, she integrated schools in 1969, 15 years after the Brown versus Bullard, Board of Education down in mm-hmm. Alabama. So if you put all that together, to what yeah. the organization <laughs> deals with, we have a unique. I have to acknowledge that before I talk as a as an elected yeah. official, so you can further understand the complexity mm-hmm. uh, of where I sit. Um, I'll, I'll pause. It seemed like you want to ask a question, or I can oh, just no, jump no. right
2: into city stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, just, all right. Jump right into it.
6: So, so look when you know when I was elected, when I got involved in the city of Long Beach, it was it was you know, just kind of understand my professional career. I, I was a, um, I was a first generation college student. I went to Cal State Dominguez Hills. It has a history rooted in social justice, and um, and you know, I had the opportunity to serve as student body president and dip my toe into local politics and under, start understanding the South Bay area. Uh, from there, I moved went into the labor movement. I spent about about four years as a union organizer, initially for faculty. Uh, and then for uh, like uh, uh, blue-collar workers in South LA, um, public employees, and I met, you know, I met Steve Neal, who was a mentor of mine uh, through the United Way. We set up a food bank in South LA. I just, you know, bought a house in Long Beach when I was 25. You know, I'd lived there for about a year or two in an apartment, but we ended up being neighbors. And he ran for city council. I helped him. He asked me to help uh, serve on his staff as a field rep. I didn't want to be a field deputy. I felt like I wanted to do something else. And he, and he, he said, no, you're a young organizer. That's what we need in North Palm Beach. I want you to be my chief of staff. And I prayed on it. I thought about it. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made to, to really learn local government as a professional, as a craft. Um, and so so from there, um, you know, uh, uh, I ran for office four years later um, uh, when I was uh, 30. Um, Our district was one, you know. How old are you now? I'm 36 now. Oh, okay. Um, So I ran when I was 30. I've been on council six years. Okay. So, you know, married now. I have two kids. I didn't have any children when I ran for office. (laughs) I have a five year old, I have a three year old. It's just the world constantly changes. Thank you. I represent North Long Beach. I'm proud of my community. Um, You know, we're heavily Latino, African American. When we took office, we didn't have a bank. Uh, we didn't have a library. We, it was a lot of things. We were clown because we were the only district with no Starbucks. Mm. Uh, just, just no real commitment to investment. And, it, and, it, and there are all these social determinants impact just the, our ability to thrive. And that's really been my focus. Take care of the district and try to set a standard of a basic standard of human dignity across the city. That's been my service philosophy. I've learned a lot. You know, I started out, you don't know everything, but when you're called to leadership, you do it because you love your community, you love your people and you figure mm. it out but you built the bike as you ride it. Um, and you talked about the agenda. I don't have to talk about the agenda that we've done, but I think it's been, I think, I think my work and my record shows where my heart and my values and where I was raised uh, align. And, and, um, and so here we are today uh, with, this, with this emergency um, and Long Beach is really facing emergency on three fronts from COVID to the economic and fiscal crisis impacting our city uh, to this, this really question that's being called on, our, on who we are as our city and our values when I came in to the city, it was always, you know, this conversation of tell two cities generations before me have dealt with this conversation of telling two cities and my generation is dealing with it, you know, differently, but we're not afraid of this moment. Uh, I was on the phone with my sister. I have a sister's older than me, you know, and a year older than me. And we were just talking this morning about the significance of this moment. And, you know, we, we really, and, you know, you have the people you go to to kind of get recentered. And, and for me, it's my big sister. I go to her and she, you know, and she, she said, our generations past us have, have had to go through this, right? We're no, like if, like we have our social and moral responsibility to go through this and try our best as our generation to deal with this or else we are no better than those in the past and we kick it on to the next generation.
5: Really? We all have
6: term limits. We have term limits. Our power is finite. That's real. We now we have That's to move. Real. Now the urgency is here. We have to move. We have to
5: get this right. I don't think Long Beach is all wrong. I I love this city. I love I think, it, dude. I, I love it, man. I love
6: this city. I feel like the leadership uh the leadership is at a moment and where we're, we're going to be tested on what we do. And the history of the city and where we go will align. And so mm-hmm. there've been different responses, man. You know, initially it was like the city just needed to come together after the very difficult night. Uh, I think it was last Tuesday. And I just sent out a tweet and said, you know what, pick up your brooms and let's go. Let's just start cleaning and talking and figuring it out. You know, and and citywide leaders did it. 2,000 people showed up. We started cleaning up and doing all those things. And then it was like, let's get right to work. Let's get right to work now. Like dust off those plans that city council might have passed and city staff might not have implemented. Dust them off. Let's see where we are. Let's have a real honest accounting, you know. I want to
2: ask you about that. I could go all day, man. Sorry about that. It's okay. Um, so I was talking to, um, Kevin that owns supply and demand and, you know, he's, he's in the unions and stuff like that. And, you know, I was telling him, you know, during the first district for city council, you know, he was just saying that how nobody over here votes. Um, it's like the lowest, uh, you know, the lowest level voting in any of the districts. And then, you know, you have people that, you know, uh, so-called are voting they have their people voting but the actual people aren't voting so you know just just talk about how important it is for you know the actual community to to step up because some of the some of the facts about you know we don't have to get into them right now but just as far as like the media and the politicians and you know who owns what a lot of people don't know that information so when you say all that it's like what's going on so You know just um just just go over the importance of like voting and being aware in your immediate uh, community
6: so i think i think voting is one piece of a broader conversation on engagement and how the government is designed to uh uh, receive input and react to input um from the public Mm -hmm. and so um, if there are issues with uh, certain areas of town not voting, then that's an issue with the system. <laughs> it's the system's responsibility to take out of, you know, the election is, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a poll. It's a test um, of where the community is. And if you're not getting an adequate sample, then it's not really reflective of the community. So, so if you have areas that have historically had low turnout, first district, used to be ninth district. we've tried. What are the things from a system standpoint we can change? Not just put. You know, I, I hate when we all just put it on those people don't vote. Well, this, exactly. system, this system's been designed well before we even had the full ability to participate in government, voting rights, right. rights, civil rights act. You know that happened while you know we talked about our parents. Yeah, you know, like I can remember some of these things and how they're affected. And so, if we know that every institution—the institution of voting, the institution of policing, the institution of local government, federal government, state government—were in, pla- in place prior to ability for African Americans and, and, and other communities to fully participate, then we have to believe that is the issue is the system and it's inherently biased against our participation. And that's called institutional racism. Yeah. And so in terms of voting, to be really specific, some of the things the city council has done, uh, we we voted to uh, move forward and align our elections with the state. By aligning our elections with the state, uh, we know that uh, local voters um, do do vote on governor and president. There's there's turnout makers and turnout takers. People don't show up to vote for their school board member, their council member. Yeah. While they're there, voting for the president or they're voting for the governor, they go ahead and go down the ballot. That's why tickets and party endorsements is so much capital placed on those because the turnouts gonna be driven from the top. Mm. How can you align with that? That's that's really how uh, a local government and aligning elections works. You know what?
0: I can I wanted to say too that that's kind of crazy. You brought up the voting for people on the school board. It surprises me too when I talk to people in Long Beach and they don't know that LB, or Long Beach Unified School District is the largest employer in Long Beach. Right. And I'm just like what? yelling at people like, why are you not voting for those positions or more informed? Because when you talk about changing the system, if you don't have people in there that represent what you're trying to advocate for, that, that doesn't happen. That's so, right.
2: Wow, yeah, that's right. right, that's right. Um, also too, you know since the since the protest on sunday you know the the people of long beach you know just the locals they've been organizing with no organization or you know just just the people right so mm-hmm. i want to ask you how do you feel about um things like you know just regular citizens getting together making a fund to make a make a community center or you know them getting together and saying, okay, well, these committees aren't working, well, we're just going to make our own committee to, you know, watch over city officials or, you know, releasing documents, basically just doing things themselves without, you know, city, you know, city oversight, I guess.
6: I think it comes down to, um, you know, I I believe in people's ability to organize and speak up and speak out. First amendment right is something that we should, we should protect we should protect I also feel just as a practitioner of local government that the role of local government has expanded and will continue to expand some issues that were not considered local government issues homelessness economic development uh, uh social issues food food security housing security those have been largely responsibility of federal state counties okay. and now cities are stepping up and i think this moment calls for cities we're more efficient in many ways than other mm-hmm. forms of government. Less interest, in, less special interest than in Sacramento, less dysfunction than Washington. We can take resources, package them together and deliver in a way that people can make sense. That's the role of local government now. And so this moment that we're in does not only, it's not only on the responsibility of oppressed people to fix the system. It's like, like we have an institution here and the institution is made up of 6,000 people and those 6,000 people, need to uh and i believe many of them do um are not neutral in this moment they they feel that this is a watershed moment that they need to be a part of and help facilitate you know how we actually make
0: structural change
2: mm-hmm. okay yeah that, so, that's that's that, that's very uh important did you want to ask him
0: yeah. So one of the things that I've been curious, or, you know, that's really come to light in, in this last week is that all around the nation, we're just seeing a lot of criticism of local city budgets as mm-hmm. people are starting to recognize just the amount of funding that's given to right. police departments here in Long Beach. Our police budget is I believe 48% of the city's yep. budget. What things can the community actually do to change that at all? if, if it's they, even possible.
6: It's, it is possible, it's possible. So look, um, couple things. So um, the city council does have the ability over the budget. A lot of that is connected to a lot of factors from collective bargaining agreements to insurance and all these other things. But in order to truly uh, take an accounting, the city at some point needs to commit to going back to zero, zero-based budgeting, which is a practice every once in a while you do to sort of check under the hood and justify expenses. Um, that is something that is I believe going to ultimately be a good government practice uh, and, and define as re- help cities to become more resilient to emergencies in general. So across local government that that needs to happen. The second thing I would say is I told you I lived in St. Paul Minneapolis is right next door. It's actually not a terrible city. I sat on the panel at the White House next to the former mayor who uh, invited personally by barack obama because she was involved in my brother's keeper she had an office of equity all of those things in minneapolis but how did that situation happen with those police officers well that means that there was no really a real agreement within the organization from top to bottom and across uh, Mm -hmm. by backed up by systems change and if it was if it were they would not they would have had measures to prevent um how it happened and the response to how and the response to it after the, the tragedy happened with Mr. George Floyd. And so that calls on every American city to do the same thing, check under the hood, check under the hood and check our own policies. And because it is, it will make us a more resilient city for everyone, not just black people It'll make like, like this is a multicultural worldwide agreement. We should understand that. I see a hand up.
1: Yeah, um, so the protester all centered around like anti-police brutality, but asking to stop killing the black community feels like the bare minimum from humanity. If yeah, we weren't forced right. to pander to the emotionally corrupt system, what are the bigger picture things we could be asking for, like reparations Great and question.
6: Great question, so <laughs> so why is there, why do we have a complex on, on, why do we have a military industrial complex, a prison industrial complex, uh, a need to define sa- safety and security as, as just the need to be dependent on police. And that's because we have to redefine our service philosophy as, as a people and as a government to value other, level, other types of security and safety. If my street is dark, I do not feel safe. If, if I am being evicted because they're not affordable housing, I do not feel safe and secure. If I do not have access to jobs, community centers, healthcare in my own community, I do not feel safe and secured. All of those things, those basic and needs, as well as the needs you, you you have to thrive, are a way of redefining the ways that our budget should be investing to create a common standard of humanity and human dignity. Otherwise, you only leave it to downstream, which is suppression, like the, like the concept of policing suppression. You have to be upstream, upstream by having an agreement on basic, basic dignity. Basic human dignity needs to be the standard. You have agreement to that. And your budget should reflect that. And so, the, the thing about divesting from police, I believe in. I believe in that. And I believe, I believe honestly, police officers would probably do, do, believe in that if they know by building a more resilient community, there is less like these guys are scared too. So you know, th- there would be less of a need for uh, any type of downstream um, uh, uh, solution. So, so if you were to ask yourself, here's one thing I've been thinking about a lot when it comes to the budget: if I increase any department, is that better for our society? So the question, if I increase parks and recreations, is it better for society? I think yes. If I believe, if I increase libraries, it is better for my city and my society, yes. If I, be, if I increase health and the investment in public health in our city, is it better for our city or better for our society? I say yes. If I increase policing in our community, is it better for our society and better, better for our community? I say no because the need to police, it, it is it is a symptom, it is a symptom of, of, of a social ill, which is institutional racism. And the need to uh, 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 have to suppress violence in order to give people the sense of safety. If they felt truly safe in their community, it would not be as much of a demand. I would love to keep every police officer on the force and retrain them to be social workers or whatever it is so that we could have that. But the reality is, we haven't defined it that way and that's the pivotal moment we are in now that is the occasion that we are in now to refine that and make it normal for people to talk about those things because i have support jobs i'm a labor guy i don't want police officers to lose their jobs i think the definition and the way we define it should change I, yeah. right I, 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 that's just how i feel
5: yeah.
0: so, so, so we, uh, we have to take a, a quick station break Mm -hmm. But I know we have some more questions about that for you. uh, And we want to bring Dr. Norman back into the conversation after the break. So we'll be right back with Councilman Rex Richardson and Dr. Alex Norman.
3: Let me take a minute to champion locally grown, volunteer-powered, listener-supported radio. KLBP is entertainment, education, and conversation for Long Beach, San Pedro, Wilmington, and beyond. Let me tell you what happens when you donate to KLVP. You give voice to your neighbors, your friends, and family. Our programming provides access for local artists, storytellers, and journalists as a priority. We also provide education and training for those residents living within the diverse neighborhoods we serve who desire to learn or improve their broadcasting and podcasting skills. Donate to KLVP. Nothing is more important right now than direct communication inside the community for the community. That's KLBP. Donate today. KLBP.org. Just click on the donate button. And stay healthy, Long Beach.
0: Hey, Long Beach. This is Melanie from Still Life. We need each other more than ever. And there is no better way to feel connected to your community than through storytelling. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for still-life stories.
3: Hey. This is Levi Chambers, the host of the new show, Pride. On the show, you'll learn about LGBTQ history, meet some incredible queer people, and discover things you didn't know about the community. From the queer pirates of the Caribbean to the first gay president of the United States, we bring you the stories you haven't heard. Pride airs every Tuesday at 10 a.m. and Thursday at 12 p.m. on 99.1 FM, KLBP, Long Beach Public Radio.
0: to public radio. My name is Ashley Aguirre and I'm joined by my co-host Rose Lozon and guest host Sunny Bauman of the Daily Diddy podcast. If you missed the first hour of our conversation, we've been touching upon all of the issues unfolding throughout our nation in this current climate in the middle of a pandemic and our guests are Dr. Alex Norman of the May Center and Councilman Rex Richardson who represents the 9th District. I'm going to go ahead and toss it back to Sunny to pick our conversation back up with Councilman Rex Richardson.
2: What would defunding the police really look like? Because, you know, well, there's there's that, but just as a, as a side thing real quick, you know, me and um, Zane from this uh, band out here, Wacko, you know, he made an interesting point, or I don't know who said it, me or him, but, you know, we were saying that if the police were aligned with what the people wanted them to do, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, they could have all the money in the world, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, well, not really, but you get me. Um, (laughs) what would, what would defunding the police really look like? And, um, you know, how can we make sure that they're not giving millions of dollars to, you know, politicians and, you know, that type of thing.
6: So, so a couple things. First, I want to, I just want to uh, acknowledge uh, the, the interest and need to talk about defunding the police. But I also want to deconstruct some of this stuff a little bit. So the, the what do you meant by giving millions of dollars to politicians? Mm-hmm. So the police department and the police doesn't, doesn't do that. That's illegal. Okay. And, and you know, there are FPVC protections, everything's reported. Like it would be very easy to know that. The
5: mm-hmm. police, doesn't,
6: the police does have a union just like Just like the street sweepers have a union, the firefighters have a union, the engineers have a union. And those unions form political action committees to help support candidates who uh, sort of uh, understand the quality of public service and public employees. And I do value that. And the reason I need to deconstruct this a little bit is, you know, big businesses, you know, with Citizens United and all of that, they're able to flood millions and millions of dollars into the political process. Labor unions represent workers who may not have millions of dollars, they may have seven bucks a month that they can contribute to a political program. They may be able to join a, a committee and meet a candidate and tell them how I feel, tell them I didn't have boots. I'll go back to my time as a union organizer when my job, my only job was to get the workers worked in the blue collar workers who didn't have steel toe boots, boots handling chainsaws, they're out there in, in filas <laughs> handling chainsaws and we had to go through a whole campaign to just get them the basic dignity of having work boots to go to work and and that's fundamental and political pressure is one strategy of that. So the concept of labor and labor's role in progressive movements and dignity, I think is important. Dr. King stood with labor. Now at the same time, you should also understand that the campaign finance limits in Long Beach are $400 per contribution per council member per campaign well per cycle, right? So you, so if you have a, a primary, you can get $400 per individual. If you have a general, you can have $400 per individual. The way that compares that for any, for cities our size, half a million, that is dramatically lower than everyone else. So imagine if a campaign costs $50,000 to run or $100,000 to run, that's 250 different individuals you have to find to give $400 as the corporations individuals, it's the same limit in Long Beach. How many people, if, you be, if you're if you just honest, you just write down how many people you know, how many people you know that have $400 to give right now? Well, well me, I, I, I didn't grow up a rich guy or a civil spoon of my mouth. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of friends with $400. I know
2: one guy. Well, think about that.
6: <laughs> just think about that for a minute. Now, now think about if you did come from privilege or if you did come out of the corporate sector, you may have colleagues, fellow attorneys, whatever it is that, that, that may have that. And so there is an issue with imbalance. I believe with public, I believe in public finance campaigns, and all, I believe in those things from a from a standpoint. So this concept of police giving this money to council members, I just want you guys to just do your homework on our local laws. That's not. It may be the case in the other areas, but four hundred dollars, you know, honestly, man, it's not. It's not that big a deal. Like if it's that big a deal when I run for election or whatever it is, I can get four hundred dollars. I can find four hundred dollars from you know, I don't know, my neighbor or something. It's, it's not about that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's more about uh, this concept of independent expenditures and PACs. Now, that's a different story.
5: Okay. Uh, if
6: if if it costs $100,000, $200,000 to win, um, and I'm limited, I can only give $400. I really like this candidate. I can only give $400. Well, I'm my voice in that process is limited to $400 worth. But Citizens United says that a corporation can spend unlimited amounts of money unlimited amounts of money supporting candidates and causes um, with no cap, no limit. And so if I'm limited to
5: $400, but you know, Joe Schmo big company can say,
6: I- I'm interested in a hundred thousand dollars. That is not fair and that mm-hmm. is not equal. Okay. So that, that's the bigger issue now back to, I want to get back to deconstruction, the, the, the defunding police. I mm-hmm. think that I think it starts with a full evaluation of the, the whole budget, if if you're fifty percent of the budget and we're already going through a part of a, a time of fiscal uncertainty with the way local government is financed, sales tax, oil tax, all that stuff is gone, and we balance our budget based on that, then then we have to start first an accounting on what 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 is needed for safety and what can be realigned and treated differently. Homelessness, that, we have a public health department. We're one of three cities in the entire state with public health. Could homelessness? Work that's taking place in the health department be more appropriately handled by people with a master's in public health uh, that are within a context and a continuum of public health. That like those are things that local governments can do and can shift. I think the long-term dependency needs to be really for the resilience sake of security of a community and and uh, like stability of, of government. It needs to be a plan. Like you 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 begin with the things you can do today, but then you start building more resiliency over a five-year plan and a ten-year plan to. Sh- to shift your government. That's that's the way that this thing is gonna have to happen from a even a healing standpoint, a culture change standpoint. If anybody who says culture shifts and it shifts in a snap, then they're not they're not talking reality. Culture has to, culture has to be sort of developed and grown. Built up and by pillars. Built up. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So the work that Dr. Norman has done, um, the work that he did with the Equitable Profile in Long Beach when I just started Long Beach as Chief of Staff, that is the thing that the concept of equity got in my head from that. Like it, my efforts may have looked very different than his efforts, but acknowledge that just like a philosopher builds off of other philosophers and they may take it a different direction. This is all still our community's construct. This is how we build and we're all connected to the same social fabric.
0: I was gonna say on that note, I actually wanna bring Dr. Norman back into the conversation because this this next thing too that I've been thinking about is is defunding the police actually enough? Because that's one part of it, but then you have a legal system that hasn't actually uh, applied any actual uh, punishment to those police officers that have had charges brought against them. So what's, what's your take on that? What what else can we do beyond that?
4: You, I'm giving you a yeah, on an op-ed piece that I've already submitted. Uh, uh, to the press telegram deals with just that issue uh, as if defunding the police uh, is going to really solve the problem of racism in the institution. And in the same sense that I think we have to, when we organize, we have to think strategically, we have to make strategic cuts. For example, the protesting and the looting of different aspects of what's going on now. But when you look at the looting, it looks highly organized. Um, unlike- Yes, it does. Not right. Yes. And we need police protection against that. So we've got to really think, where do we begin to cut with the police department? Now, personally, I believe, that you can't change the content without changing the context. So if the context is white supremacy and that's embedded in all of our institutions, then police is simply one dimension of the judicial criminal justice system. It would mean that that entire system needs to be changed at the same time i can agree that i would cut every penny that goes to any militarized aspect of the police department okay. the other thing i would suggest is that we need a different policing model you know, i've been working with police for god 45 50 years i've been working with police for 45 50 years including Uh, training police chiefs I was a professor of command college so I trained police chiefs Um, I did a 10-year study for LAPD on community policing I introduced community policing uh, to Tony Batts and the um, Long Beach Police Department and uh, it created a 40-hour training program in service training program at the Academy so So I know that there are changes that can be made. However, as soon as Tony Bass left, and we brought in another chief, we went in a different direction. So that suggests that, as Rex was saying, it's a systemic problem. So an individual can't come in, no matter how charismatic that individual is. That individual leaves, and it's like rain in the desert. You know, 15 minutes later, you never knew that was a storm. And so a chief comes in and he says, let's start off on the left foot and the left foot is smash mouth policing. Everybody goes into smash mouth policing. That was Jim McDonald. You know? Another chief comes in and says, okay, we're gonna start on the right foot. The right foot is community policing. And then everybody falls in line. That was Tony Batts. So I think it's very difficult um the kind of cuts uh that are going to be made but i would suggest that they be made strategically i don't know budgeting i don't know the city budget so i don't feel that i'm at all uh, qualified to comment there but i do feel that i'm qualified to comment on law enforcement i work with the london metropolitan police uh, in training uh, their commanders i work with the bristol uh, England constabulary and Avon's constabulary and training their people in neighborhood policing. And I think what we need is a different policing model. We need the model of policing that's based on the principles that our whole police department was set up on. It was set up on the Robert Peel principles. And Peel's principles was that the community are the police and the police are the community and that the police simply distinguish themselves because they have a responsibility for protecting those of whom they are a part. So community and police are opposite sides of the same coin. That's the model that was um, instituted in Britain. As a matter of fact, they call the British police, they call them bobbies. That was because of Bobby Peel. So they were Bobby's boys. And they operate on that principle. And that principle is one of service, that there's a service to the community. And our police force operate on the basis that they occupy the community. So they need to dominate and show up in force. And what we need is a different policing model, as we need a different educational model, and a different judicial model, and a different health model. We need all of our systems need to be revised. Mm-hmm. That's my rant. Uh,
2: cancel. I
0: was. Oh, sorry. I, uh, I was gonna just add that I was really impressed too by the, the issue made by uh, Barbara Ferrer from the LA uh, Department of, of Public Health where she was equating coronavirus as a racial justice issue as well um, um, because it's also a conversation yeah. that people overlook that we're not talking about the health disparities that also disproportionately affect, you know, the the black and brown communities and, you know, um, that's another thing that I I have some just questions about that and, and wanna know how you feel about the health system currently.
4: Well, I, I did a, a, a study uh, called the State of Black Long Beach back in 2012. And one of the things that I did was ended up with uh, and this gets back to some of the issues that Rex mentioned that we've had a little bit of a scrape because I tend to hold people to very high standards. Mm-hmm. And uh, my students used to say, Dr. Norman will love you to death, but he'll work you to death too. You know, <laughs> it's just that, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time, yeah. you know? I mean, we have, a, we have a short time that we're here and there's a window of opportunity that opens And that window doesn't stay open long and it doesn't open far. So you have to open it the rest of the way, get in before it closes. And so my my feeling is that when I did the study, I looked at issues in Long Beach among black Americans. And I called that book that I wrote 12 years later or 10 years later, African-American leadership at the crossroads. Because in that State of Black Long Beach report, one of the things that I focused on was the health disparities. And I suggested that that would be a place for us to start. Because I could see that, given the issues at work, we were losing a lot of uh, time at work because of obesity, diabetes, heart attacks, strokes, and that you could determine a person's life expectancy by their zip code and if you looked at our zip codes uh, black and brown people were in those uh, zip codes where they were dying earlier yeah so it is a matter of of, of a racist uh, system of a disparate system of providing health care for different people and the model is set up based on white supremacy. So it's unfair to expect a system that was not built for us to favor us. Exactly, We have to change that system. Mm-hmm. Now that's our burden, but it's not our problem. It's a white problem, <laughs> but it's our burden. Mm. The, the power to change rests not in us, but in the decision-makers who control those institutions. Exactly. we have to hold them accountable, put pressure on them, but ultimately that change has to be made by them. Right.
2: Council member, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, with all the projects and things that you have done, uh, have you met any, like, resistance from people in the city or, you know, people that have influence in... If so, like, what did you do or who did you go to to get help for some of the things that you did besides like city officials, you know, as far as like, you know, getting money for projects or things like that?
6: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been around for for a while now. I got started when I was 26 in the city and I'm now 36. So it's, uh, it's 10 years next month that uh, I've been with the city in different wow. different roles. So so it's four years as a chief of staff and six years on council. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, change is not easy, right? You, you run into uh, opposition. I, what I try to do is try to really understand, like when you right. come from a district, when you try to come from a district that has great people and just had, doesn't have certain investments, you're used to being told no or mm-hmm. running into roadblocks. I remember, and I, and I won't name names here, but, but I remember when we started the process and we said, we want Atlantic Avenue. To really be the main street of North Long Beach, because you already have uh, a library there, you have a park there. What is it missing? Higher ed, a library, retail, banks. And so we started saying, well, well what can be the measure, the catalyst to pull it together? Well, let's start a business improvement district. Other cities, you know, other areas have them and they're thriving. Um, you know, why don't we start there? Well, initially it was, well, Rex, North Long Beach isn't ready for a business improvement district. Give it ten years. Ten years. 10,
5: yeah, it'll take years? it'll
6: take you ten years. So ten, a, you know, give it ten years. So, so if it's ten years, then day one is today. It didn't take ten years. It took two years. It just wasn't the belief wasn't there that it could, it could happen. Mm-hmm. There's so many examples. When we talked about doing the Howland Park Community Center, you know, back when Steve Neal was in office, you know, this was you know uh, just shy of ten years ago. Let's look. Our community center is the most utilized in the city. It serves. It's the only regional as a senior program teen center. 90805 area is the fifth is a fifth of the city's population. It serves 20% of the whole city, mm. and, it's, and the roof is collapsing, and it's raining, and it's our only facility here. We got to invest in it. They said, "Well, we did a feasibility study. It cost ten million dollars to replace. That's just not, just not there, right?" I wish we moved on it when it was ten million dollars to replace it. It's it's $20, 25000000 dollars to really do it today, mm. um, today. But we were able to, you know, we we add we fixed it. We added a new building. It's done. We were going to open it and then the COVID pandemic hit and oh, somebody was sitting there. Very nice. I can't wait to show people. right? <laughs> but, but they can't see it. It's expanded square footage, all that. But, but the point is, we're used to, like, in local government, I love the challenge. I love bringing people together, having them
5: mm-hmm. believe
6: in what can be accomplished. I love that. I have so many examples of that. When we came in, North Long Beach had four or five neighborhood associations. That's it. Just a few. And, you know, initially there was a lot of contempt for the city hey you you're the same city that contracted out a police departments to LA county sheriffs uh, you, you know we feel disk and there's five other, other city halls closer to my house than my own city hall
5: those mm. are the things you would hear from north
6: long beach and we had to build that that trust that congruency have everybody understand that social fabric i love that process that's what that's what i love as a former uh, uh, student body president as a former community organizer. I love the one-on-one conversations, building leadership. We have now 12 neighborhood associations instead of five. Word. We have a business improvement district. Long Beach Opera moved to North Long Beach. Hmm. Long Beach Cap moved to North Long Beach. Yeah they did so
2: out uh, Long right, Beach. Right. Think about this.
6: Think about this. We didn't even have a strong nonprofit sector. We have the we have the largest most modern branch library in the city in North Long Beach. album mm-hmm. Park North Long Beach. We got Chase Bank. We're the only district wide bank. Chase Bank is done. They're just waiting on the the government's real, the, you know, the economy reopened and yeah. they got their bank. We had no coffee shop. We got three of them now. Like this is, this is community transformation. I'm proud of. I love doing that work.
2: Thank you. I my brother.
6: The original
1: question, man.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Rose has a question.
1: Um, more of just like kind of a comment, what you said, like from the 10 year to the two year situation, there's this quote from no name, uh, pessimism is a tool of white supremacy they don't want you to be imaginative about a world free from genocide wealth hoarding patriarchy in these moments you think revolution is impossible it's important to remember that that way of thinking is inherently violent and supremacist and it's I think it's remarkable that you took that 10-year goal and made it into Mm
6: -hmm. yeah I mean you articulated better than I did and you send me that quote when you can't. <laughs> no <laughs> name, it, no you know, name. Dropping the, <laughs> that
0: that's, that's no name the rapper, right? <laughs> Rose, is that where you got it from? Or, or 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 is it anonymous?
1: It's a tweet from no name. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think.
2: Um, Dr, Dr. Norman, um, first of all, I didn't mean to interrupt you like that. I totally uh, agree with you. I was just saying that, uh, you know, the police don't need to have any any militarized anything, you know, as we see today, you know, the national guards out there. So we don't need the police to do any of that when we got, you know, dudes like that out there. But I do want to ask you this, um, in the, like, even in my own stats with the daily ditty and and things like that, um, only 1% of the people that listen to it are from zero to 17. And I know, you know, during the civil uh, rights, you know, movement, You know, back in the 60s, it was a lot of the youth in the streets marching, like a lot of the youth. I don't really, um, you know, I I see people in my age range, like I'm 26. I see maybe like 19, 20 year olds, but I don't really see like any high school students out there. You know, how do we how do we get back in contact with that? And, you know, because those are uh, those are the 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 I'm not going to say children or kids. Those are the people that are going to be doing this, you know, when. I'm gone. So, how do we get them started right now?
4: It's very difficult to do when you don't have uh, organizational infrastructure. <sighs> During this um, mot- the uh, civil rights movement, you had you had active national organizations: NAACP, right. Urban League, um, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Um, Dorothy Height, and the uh, National Negro uh, Women. Uh, Negro Women. Um, uh, the Student Nonviolent uh, Coordinating Committee. You had That's all right. of these national organizations that had local units. And so what they were there to do was to educate the community, which included the young people. Mm-hmm. So the marching was not just tactical, it was strategic it was educating young people about the role of exercising that First Amendment right, which was to protest against the government. That was impressive. Mm-hmm. When in the course of human events, a government is oppressive against its people, they have a right to rise up against it. That is in our Constitution. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what was happening at that time was educating young people. So one of those uh, uh, young people, uh, a colleague of mine, um, uh, Roberts, uh, Terry Roberts, was one of the original Little Rock Nine. Mm. But what happened was those families educated the kids on how to act, on what to do. I mean, it wasn't just throwing those kids out there to the wind.
5: Yeah.
4: It was using those kids strategically because we knew that the general public was much more likely to identify with the plight of kids than they were with adults.
2: Exactly. That's what I was thinking about yesterday. Cause you know, there's a lot of people that are saying, you know, protesting and, you know, uh, everything has evolved since back in the day. So a lot of people are saying, you know, there's a lot of opportunist groups and you shouldn't bring your kids out. And then I seen these kids, uh, you know, leading this March saying, you know, say his name George Floyd and they're like screaming, you know, this man's name and stuff, and, you know, the kids crying and stuff and it, it, it made me cry. And I was like, you know, we, we probably do need more of this, you know? So, uh, yeah, everybody in involved that has to, uh, do with this. So um, well,
0: before we, we move on to stuff, we have to take a, a quick break, but, mm-hmm. um, when we come back, I definitely want to get into some of just the quick future things and how we, obviously move forward and maybe your experiences as being black men in in this time. So we'll be right back to to hear a little bit more from Councilman Rex Richardson and Dr. Alex Norman.
3: How legal are shelter in place orders? If my ex-husband or ex-wife wants to withhold my child from me because of the coronavirus, can they do that? What is the legal standard for getting a restraining order? If you want to get the answers to these questions, listen to Bear Law, Mondays at 10 a.m. and Thursdays at 11 a.m., where I talk about the law in the news and, of course, the law in Long Beach. So tune in to Bear Law with Robert Bear Mondays, 10 a.m., and Thursdays at 11 a.m. every week on KLBP-FM.
1: A little talk, epic music, a lot of heart. Morning
0: Intentions Radio is brought to you by Jane Free and a collective of Long Beach healing artists and musicians. We're excited to share um, our passions, our meditations, and our intentions. Welcome back to Let's Cope on 99.1 KLBP Long Beach Public Radio. I'm Ashley Aguirre.
2: I'm Sonny Bauman from the Daily Diddy.
1: And I'm Rose Lozon.
0: So I want to pick up the conversation just a little bit more about obviously the future because we're in this moment. And one of the things we talk a lot about on the show is we talk about what we call the gifts of the pandemic because through this all we need to see the silver lining. And I was personally reflecting on this yesterday and just thinking about how The reason we are in this moment right now, because I'm thinking, what's taken us so long to get here and have this kind of action? You see protests all across all 50 states in the U.S. right now, which, if anything, is unprecedented in our history. It's that, that you've had all of the states mobilized. How? What do you think it it is about this moment in particular that has pushed us? to this. Uh, obviously there's, there's the, the pandemic, but what do you think it is that's allowing people to be part of, part of this and be so engaged?
6: Well, big question.
4: Go ahead, Rick. Go for it, you go for it, Dr. Norman, you start. Well, I, th- I think it's the young people. I, th- I think what has happened is that young people have awakened uh, to a sense of responsibility unlike any time that I've seen. What I mean, when the 14, 16, 17-year-old uh, uh, young people are organizing international movements uh, for environment, uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter was, I mean, that's because of a young person's life being taken and young people just being outraged that what would have happened, enraged, so that they did something about it. I I think that what we saw with George uh, uh, Floyd, that was a 17-year-old girl who stood there filming that officer as he Mm. looked at her with depraved indifference. And that look is embedded in my mind. I can't get it out of my head. That that is the look that we're dealing with. That is white supremacy incarnate, that feels that I can put my knee on your neck, struggle, strangle you of your life, and still have my knee on your neck. I mean, that is unbelievable. So my belief is that we will not invest in youth. One of the things that happened in Long Beach was an invest in youth campaign. And that Invest in Youth campaign has resulted in champions of young people. Rex Richardson as a councilman and Lena Gonzalez as a councilwoman were supportive of those youth. And that's the way we had $200,000 set aside to do a strategic plan on youth and young adults in Long Beach. So if we can create an infrastructure where youth and Long Beach can come together, not only to receive services, but to be empowered, educated and instructed on how to participate in government, how to develop leadership um, among the communities, how to develop collaboration across different ethnic groups. I think it is a moment. I think we have a pandemic moment here that's created um, an opportunity. The Chinese say that Crisis and opportunity, the symbol is the same. So for every crisis, there's an opportunity. And the question here is, will we take advantage of this opportunity to invest in our youth? And I would say if we're going to take money from the police department, that one of the first places that we think about putting it is in a youth division or a youth center or a youth something that really looks at uh, our young people what, 136,000 plus young people in our, in, in Long Beach. i still say our, I'm in your Belinda, but my heart's in Long Beach. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And Councilman Richardson, I know you, you, you had some thoughts on that too.
6: I, I agree. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, the reality is we, Long Beach, we should, as a local government, kind of strive for the best at everything. And the question is, do we have the best uh, youth development continuum in the country? Do we have that? Do we have the best that's available to our youth? I know we have pieces. I know we have a great community college. I know we have access to Long Beach City College right here in the community. I know we have Cal State Dominguez Hills it's right on our border, which uh, has a lot of resources and uh, that may be a different lens than Cal State Long Beach that may be appropriate for or appropriate for you know some type of uh, education structure. So there, there's pieces there. You have a workforce agency. You have opportunity there. Uh, the question is, um, is it all designed in a way that is accept, accessible, creates uh, the same opportunities for for youth uh, that youth during the summertime are given, you know, access to 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 be enriched by the very community themselves. Uh, what about poor kids? You know how do our poor kids fareing? Faring? Do we just assume because they get free lunch that everything's okay? How's mm. mental health? How's the wraparound services for these kids? You know, how's what about academic academic achievement and performance? Is it something that we, we you know we hold up and we we point to and say we have a great school district and say a broad statement without acknowledging, you know, without acknowledging the challenges of a large school district, school discipline reform, uh, the need to standardize uh, alternative forms of of, of uh, uh, um, you know, dis- school discipline and school district reform. So, so this is a moment. To just ask those questions: Where do we measure? Where do we stand up? How does our youth development continuum stack up to what what it should be? Because ultimately, the youth will inherit will inherit this community, and it's in all of our best interest to invest in those youth.
0: I want to ask you a little Thank bit you. just about the the experience of obviously just being a black man right now like it feels like even just being black right now is political where you don't really have an option because the world kind of expects a response from you you know when sometimes you just all you want to do is live your life you want to exist you want to be able to do the things that other people do without the threat of violence against you how do you cope with that right now and and kind of that burden that is placed upon you
6: I I, you know I think the black experience is not a monolith. everybody has different different ways of uh coping and um when I was in college it was uh you know I clung to uh the director of EOP uh, as just a mentor um his 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 name was Walter Walter Jones he had a group called the black men's group not a sophisticated name but we got the point he grabbed, uh, you know, black men on campus and once a week we would go into his office and sit and talk. At that time we had a black university president, vice president of student affairs and they would come in occasionally and, you know, and I'm not the president right now. Let's just talk about coping skills. Let's talk about some some advice I can kick to you about when you drive off campus at Cal State Dominguez Hills, how to interact with the community, how to interact with the police, uh, How, you know, let's talk about just your experiences and, and we have to have those those circles. That's a best practice. And a lot of people may have criticized, you know, whether my brother's keeper was progressive enough or radical enough, but I appreciated the fact that I could convene with, you know, people having full on conversations about the, about boys and young men of color and what we can do to change systems to create a better condition for them. I, I loved that. That's the first thing I took on when I came into office was to engage directly in that because that's such a direct connection to the future of the city.
0: So what what is next for for a city? I I want to hear. Obviously, you guys are two great. Yeah. Just aside from change makers, you're also mm-hmm. great thought leaders on how right. we, we we find solutions and mm-hmm. stuff. Where do we go from here uh, as a city specifically? What can we do to to start to make some changes?
6: Who you want to you want to go first? You want you want to go first? Keep Sorry. going. I mean, I keep think. going. Yeah. Okay. So so I feel like we're ready for this moment. I feel like. The city is not fully there, but I think we're ready for this opportunity to make a big leap forward. And I think the region is to mentioned earlier, I'm president of an organization called SCAG, Southern California Association of Governments. It is a regional planning agency. It's responsible for long range planning and shaping a long range vision for the region. Long Beach is not the only city in this region. There are 191 of them, all of them trying to figure out what the future looks like. And I happen to, i didn't know that this was going to happen I, that I was going to be the President during this worldwide pandemic and, and, and this moment. I was actually supposed to be first Vice President, but the first vice President got appointed to the Trump administration, and I got thrown in and Here I am sworn in as the President of the region at the middle of this crisis. Yeah. and what I can offer in that space is this we should not be talking about how we go back to, how we get back to normal, how we return. normal meant for many communities, uh, a, a tale of two, you know, many, many different experiences that, um, that meant, you know, not access to, to you know, not a lot of equ- economic access, economic achievement. Um, uh, from a transportation standpoint, not a lot of equity, people living in uh, places with environmental challenges from a housing standpoint, a uh, situation where entire generations and people cannot buy homes. That's not something we want to return to. So now's a moment for we can, we can reimagine and reinvent the region, how we take our long-range plans and we lace equity throughout those plans, how we lift up best practices for cities to take a look at, uh, on how you integrate um, uh, a post-COVID-19 lens, a racial equity lens on your general plan, your specific plan, your transportation plan. That's the role of the region. Now, I take that experience that I gained there, and I try to put my own city in comparison to what national best practices look like. And I think mm-hmm. Long Beach is in that very moment where we have to take an honest accounting of where we are, where we want to be as a vision. Um, and, and if we were to, to assume that institutional racism does exist, if we were to all just take that, take, start with from that point of acknowledgement that it does exist, then should it be the organization's purpose and the plan, the general plan's purpose to root it out and make things more equitable? Or is it the role of individuals? Is it a role of council people? Is it a role of uh, black community? No, we should plan for it. It's just as essential to our resiliency as a city, as a pandemic or an earthquake is, you see it right now. It can devastate your community if you don't plan for it. So here are some steps that I've recommended um, to try to make sense and just give some direction on structuring this conversation. Uh, in looking at truth and reconciliation in South Africa and in Canada and, and in Australia, and in just looking at um, sort of understanding our dynamics when we had a, a crisis a couple of years ago around the land use element, um, there were a lot of people standing up screaming, fighting our city saying, not in my backyard. I do not want additional density. I do not want these things changing the character of my neighborhood. Town hall meetings of 500 people at a time. The city came out and met it head on. City staff put up tents and heard from those people and listened to those people about their concerns. Well, right now people are in the street and I believe that the city has the same responsibility to meet it head on and listen, formally, formally listen. Take into account what people are saying. It doesn't even have to make sense at first, but hear it, hear the opinions of those people. Then second, we have to begin, once we gather that information a formal way, we need to begin to convene. We can convene internally as a city, we can convene with leaders, Business agencies that were trying to figure this out need to convene. Nonprofit sectors, progressive groups should look internally to themselves. Why is there not a lot of black leadership in the progress movement in the city? But look internally at these things, they're all institutions. So take a look. And I know that people say, oh, I'm tired of looking, I'm tired of convening, I'm tired of listening, I'm ready for action. Well, yeah, but what's the strategy? There's gotta be a strategy, immediate, short term, medium term, long term, intersectional strategy. That's what comes out of that second phase, immediate things that can be done now to address and acknowledge the need of, for change, medium things, long-term things. Uh, there's a lot of focus on citizen police complaint commission. I feel like the, the mistake is to point at one commission and say, that's going to fix this problem. The the, the commission mm-hmm. in of itself is a charter commission. It, we can't even change it this year. People talking about this, like it can't happen until 2022. The deadline is passed to put it on the November ballot. There's a lot that can go on the ballot though, that's just not charter reform. A mm-hmm. lot of things that you guys have voted on were not charter reform. There's things that could be happening that could happen now, but there has to be buy-in from the organization from the top down, Tom Odega all the way down and across the organization that we have to fix this because we can't move forward without fixing this. We cannot move forward from this moment. So the third phase again was, was listen. It's, uh, it's, it's it, first acknowledge, listen, convene, catalyze catalyzes put the plan into motion now this sounds like a long process it probably should be a six month 12 month process but we don't have time for that yeah. this all needs to be wrapped up the listening process people are already listening they're already talking we should be listening right now right now get to convening within the next get the process of convening within the next two to three weeks start that process get it done count on have some integrity to the process bring in national leaders bring in policy link Bring in Cal State Dominguez Hills who has a history in this. Like, Count on institutions and who will have to embrace and talk about this. Get the PhD students engaged. They're going to write their dissertations, man. Give them yeah. an opportunity to help shape this.
5: Yeah, and that's we smart. To,
6: to action, let me just say this part. When we get to like catalyzing action, everybody has a responsibility to that. Voters have a responsibility to vote in this action. Council members, school board members, college board members. Everyone, nonprofit leaders, business leaders should be examples right now in this moment. So I would say, I would say you guys is, you know, if you are connected, are you connected with Long Beach State? I believe it's connected with Long Beach State. Is that right? The radio?
0: We're not. We're actually no. all independent. completely independent. A hundred percent. I keep calling
6: owned. you guys youth, man. <laughs> I, maybe just because of the way you look. But I, I'm your but you age. Should, well, you should look at it. <laughs> What I'm saying is you should be an example too, right? Media has a responsibility to mm-hmm. like. What stories has media, has media lifted up in the past? How they perpetuated this narrative? And you know, think about the editors of all our periodicals. Are any pe- any people of color? Are the editors of any periodicals in the city? Are, are any pe- oh. people of color leading any of our major agencies? Yeah.
0: I mean, that's something that I've been transparent on after we had our grand opening, because I'm actually the president of the nonprofit that started the the radio station. And after our grand opening, I sat down with our team and I'm just like, I'm not happy like why is it like we we're not in a position to hire people it's all volunteer run Uh, but at the same time I'm just like why is all the team that we've brought on why is there not a single black person in this community because if you don't have that reflected in that leadership it's not going to be reflected in our programming so we've, we've already been having conversations for the last two three months and part of it was just we didn't have the space to offer, but it's like, now we have the space. We have to do the outreach so that people know that we're here because even our decision to be downtown was very political. Mm -hmm. Uh, We wanted to make sure that people that were involved with the station could walk over to city council, could walk over and be visible in that community in a place that isn't usually really occupied by locals.
6: Mm -hmm. You know, so. You (laughs) can come to North Long Beach if you want to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We, We may need a second studio.
4: All right. Uh, you, may, you may need to think about locating in a different area. Let me go back to the question you asked about being a black man. You know, first I have to say that my family uh, sustained me. I mean, we had um, we had family reunions where, in the African tradition, there was the griot who told the story of the family. So. Pappy Charles was the patriarch of our family. And he told all of the stories about all the Normans. He told about my grandpa who, Eli Spires, who was a a metalsmith in uh, Augusta, Georgia, who was born 1833 and was emancipated from slavery and built his, Uh, blacksmith shop to the point where he had all of the uh, of the work and the whites didn't have any so the white men came over to ask him if he would come to work for them and he was saying why should I work for you when I've got all of this business myself well a lot of stuff went on but the the short story is that the Klan singled him out And one day when my grandmother was at home alone, one of the Klan members, who was an insurance agent, assaulted her. And she told my grandpa. And when he came home, he went down to the insurance agent's business and he beat him to death. And the Klan then sought after my grandfather, And they killed him but he took three of them with him. And so my family, they always said that you have to determine what hill you want to die on. And we got that from when we were little. And my grandmother would say that you've got to be like tea. The hotter the water, the stronger you get. So I got all of these family Sayings that didn't mean too much to me at the time that they said them, but later on meant everything to me. The other thing is that I've had tremendous mentors. I mean, I've had uh, people who I happened to grow up. It's matter when I was born, really. So uh, Whitney Young, who became the uh, Urban League director, was my mentor at Atlanta University. Uh, w. B. Du Bois, that. Uh, Uh, that Rex says was his favorite, uh, was one of my favorites because he fashioned the sociology program at Atlanta University from which I graduated. Uh, His writings uh, guided my every thought. He was the intellectual of our uh, generation. Um, The people during the civil rights movement who took me under their wings and taught me. Uh, how to be calm in chaotic situations and how to not lose my cool and how to not lose my head. James Baldwin says that what we have to do is channel that anger because that anger can be the very thing that could be devastating to you. So I credit my mentors, many of them, men and women of all, ethnic groups i credit them with strengthening the character that was already there instilled by my family in terms of where we go from here that's what i that's what i'm writing about where do we go from here i'm using what i have experienced in my life and what i see in the country w- using long beach as a case study because for the last 21 years, that's all I've known. I've known, I've slept, I've ate, I've, I've drunk Long Beach for all this time. So Long Beach gave me a second win. I was professionally done. I was gonna come to Long Beach and write my memoirs. And in the last 20 years, I've done some of the best work I've ever done in my life. So Long Beach has a special place in my heart. And that's the memoir that I'm currently writing. But one of the things that I see that's missing in Long Beach is the infrastructure that galvanizes the community. I think the city may very well be poised to do something, but I've seen too many governmental efforts fade. And I think there has to be an accountability system uh, set up. And I believe that that accountability system is the community infrastructure. Now, unfortunately, when you look at the ethnic minority uh, organizations in Long Beach, they are not that strong. And yet the potential is there. So I think that the future really lies in our ability to galvanize young people into an organizing force. I think the older people We've had our day. I mean, that's not gonna happen, you know. It may be that people in Rex's generation uh, can do something, but it has to be done in coordination with the young people. And we have to listen to the young people. I did um, focus groups in all of the council districts, trained the young people to conduct those focus groups and how to uh, develop the data and thematically analyze the data they are thinking I mean they are they are incredible you know but they need to be listened to so I've just completed the report and I've drafted the report and sent it to the city a draft of a strategic plan for youth and emerging adults and one of the things that comes clear is that the young people are under tremendous stress And part of whatever we do in providing service for young people should be a mental health center, a clinic or something where young people can come, especially LBGQ, because much of the trauma from which they are suffering is caused by their home situation. Exactly. So they get, traumatized at home they go to school they get traumatized and they come in the community and they're traumatized Mm -hmm. so i think that the the future for me is not as clear as it is for the councilman (sighs) i think it's far more up in the air and it depends as my grandmother would say it all depends it depends on our ability to galvanize the youth that we invest in and get them to see that there's a common thread that binds the gay youth, the transgender, the ethnic, different ethnic groups. It combines them together and we need to operate as one. If that happens, then we have a rosy future. <laughs> if that doesn't happen, 10, 15 years, you'll be having this conversation again.
6: Yeah,
2: well, thank
6: if you I guys. I also just say, just say like, y'all need to vote in November, too, please. That <laughs> yeah, sure. will make it a lot easier. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, thank both of you, gentlemen, for being on today's uh, show. You know, Rex Richardson, I'm, I've known about you for, you know, for some years now. I've been wanting to talk to you, and it's great that, you know, KLBP was able to do this for us today. And I just found out about you, Dr. Norman, you know, two days ago, and it's good that, you know, we have your experience here with the you So thank you guys for being on today's show.
0: Yes, thank you. I want to e- echo the, those thank yous so much. It's a conversation that needs to be had, and we're looking forward to having more. Sunny, I think you may end up being a permanent co-host at some point. So. Oh, yeah, I'm
5: down, man. Yeah.
0: <laughs> get get ready for that. Uh, be sure to tune in. Tune in next Wednesday. I know this episode has really been heavy about the male perspective, and so we are interested in talking to some of the ladies in the movement and getting their, their stories, because we know that, that Black women also face an additional factor of discrimination. And so we were eager to have those conversations. For Let's Cope, I'm Ashley Aguirre.
2: I'm Sunny Bauman.
0: I'm Rose Liaison. And thanks again for joining us. Here to play us out is the late great Charles Bradley with a song called, Why Is It So Hard? Which I'm sure is a question on everyone's mind.
3: Let me take a minute to champion locally grown, volunteer-powered, listener-supported radio. KLBP is entertainment, education, and conversation for Long Beach, San Pedro, Wilmington, and beyond. Let me tell you what happens when you donate to KLVP. You give voice to your neighbors, your friends, and family. Our programming provides access for local artists, storytellers, and journalists as a priority. We also provide education and training for those residents living within the diverse neighborhoods we serve who desire to learn or improve their broadcasting and podcasting skills. Donate to KLBP. Nothing is more important right now than direct communication inside the community for the community. That's KLBP. Donate today. KLBP.org. Just click on the donate button and stay healthy, Long Beach.